This is our 200th and final podcast that I'll be posting on this channel. From now on, I'll only be posting new recordings on a different channel called It's Genius, and I hope everyone will join us over there, where we'll continue to try to make complex Torah ideas more accessible, and we'll continue learning through important Torah concepts and svarim. Now, we've accomplished a great deal on this channel. We had 164 recordings devoted to the Torah of Rab Chaim Salavechik, including going through the entire Sefer Chidusha Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi, every single piece. And then we've devoted 36 pieces to looking at some of the other major figures in the Soloveitchik family. So we've really learned through a tremendous amount. And of course, there's an incredible amount more to learn from the Soloveitchik's Torah. And even in the pieces that we've learned, there's an endless more to think about and to learn. But we have accomplished a great deal of learning in these pieces. Now, for the final piece, we're going to look at a topic that we haven't really looked at in any of the earlier pieces. And that is the laws of tshuva, of repentance. And interestingly, even though this is a key concept in the Rambam, Reb Chaim and Reb Velvel have very few thoughts on it. Whereas Reb Yosef Dov has a tremendous amount of thoughts. They're collected in his Sefer Al HaTshuva. And we've referenced a few times his Yortzeit Shir that he would give annually in memory of his father, which were collected in Shi'urim Lezecher Abamari. And a lot of those Shi'urim have some similarities with pieces in Reb Velvel. So we've referenced Shi'ur and Lezecher Abamari in earlier recordings. Now, there was another major annual Shi'ur that Rabbi Yosef Dov would give, which was on Shuva during the Aseris Yemei Shuva. And again, he would follow the typical brisker format that he would analyze the Rambam and he would have a long conceptual halachic analysis. And then he would build on that and apply a whole ideological, philosophical lesson that he derived from that. So they were very powerful, very popular shiurim. And you can find various transcripts of the ideas in different places, but the main collection of them is this Sefer al Hachuva. So this fills in a certain gap that for some reason Rab Chaim and Rab Velvel did not interpret very much the Rambam's Hilchos Tshuva, but Rab Yosef Dov fills in how a brisker analysis of Hilchos Tshuva might look. Now, as we know, Rab Yosef Dov has a more philosophic side than his father and his grandfather and his uncle. So these shiurim have a very strong philosophical component. But in addition, they're also a very powerful type of musr. And this is an irony because as we saw in an earlier recording, Rab Chaim's general stance was actually opposed to the musr movement. And here, about 100 years after Rab Chaim begins his conceptual method, his grandson almost writes what could be called a Musser Sefer. So there's some irony in this idea that one of the major brisker figures ends up writing a Musser Sefer towards the end of the whole development of the tradition. And it's a lesson for us that in many ways, the different forms of Yiddishkeit really end up in the same places, whether it's Musser, Hasidus, or Lithuanian Judaism, whatever it is, they're all basically trying to come closer to God and study Torah and Daven properly and do Chesed. It's all effectively the same thing at its core, even if some of the language and the surface ideas might seem very different. So that's how the Brisker method and the Musser method somewhat end up in the same place. And as we've seen in the Slabotka yeshiva, which became the role model for subsequent yeshivas, this was very much the case. It was a combination of Musser and Brisk. So Rabbi Yosef Dov's Shiurim and Shuva are also somewhat in that line in combining these two great traditions. Now that 
said, Rabbi Yosef Dov's analysis of tshuva is not really musr because he has a very different idea of tshuva than the one that we're used to, which comes from the musr movement. The musr idea of tshuva is a very intense, almost rigid, maybe pessimistic idea that people are prone to sin and we have to fight our nature and we have to control ourselves and the best time to do that is the month of Elul and Aser Shimei Tshuva. But it's a constant war against our nature to try to control our base desires and to come closer to Hashem. Rabbi Yosef Dov's vision of tshuva is really very different than that. And he talks a lot about the optimistic side of tshuva, that a person naturally wants to come closer to Hashem, that a sin is a mistake. And tshuva is really the process of seeing that error and coming back to what's organic, what's natural to the person. So this is not a dark, grim, dire vision of tshuva as a war on a person's natural tendencies, but in many ways, it's really the opposite. It's a very optimistic, happy view of tshuva that a person can come closer to Hashem. They can turn around their perspective. They see things the wrong way. And by going through the process of tshuva, they're going to open their eyes and see things properly. And they're going to be able to live life to their fullest the way they really want to, the way their soul wants to, and to be able to connect with Hashem. So it's a very beautiful book. It's certainly worth a read through. And particularly during the season of tshuva, for anyone that's interested in a slightly different perspective on tshuva, which is based on an analysis of the Rambam, but even more so the lived experience of Rabbi Yosef Dov, you really get a sense in these shiurim for how much he lived these concepts for his emotional experience of tshuva as we saw in the last recording, many of Rabbi Yosef Adov's more philosophical ideas combine rigorous, brisker analysis with his own lived experience being trained from his very first years in the rigorous method of Rabbi Chaim, and he himself being a towering Talmud Chacham and a Gadol Yisrael with very powerful emotions that he's able to convey very beautifully. So his ideas on tshuva likewise are a combination of analysis together with his own lived experience, and you really get a sense for how a Gadol B'Yisrael experiences this process. Rabbi Yechezkel Danziger from Lakewood told me that he one time attended one of the Tshuva Shi'urim, and even though it went on for a very long time, he was riveted by it. He was surprised that he was able to pay attention for so long, and that he didn't lose interest, but he commented that when Rabbi Yosef Dov spoke about Tshuva, you did not get the sense that this was something he had just prepared, that he sat down and came up with a couple of questions and answers and prepared a shear like is often done, encouraging people to do tshuva a little more at a higher level than where he was at. Rabbi Danziger said that you got the feeling that these were ideas Rabbi Yosef Dov lived with, that he had been thinking about the Rambam's Hilchos Tshuva for decades and that it was seeped into him and that when he was discussing it, they were ideas coming out from the whole essence of who he was and how he lived. So I'm certainly not going to be able to recreate that aspect of the book and it's worth each person trying to go through the book and allow those ideas to seep into them. I don't even know if you can get the full experience of listening 
listening to it from reading it in a book, but it's the best we have. And the book is available both in Hebrew and in English. And impressively, they're both written by Professor Pinchas Peli, who was a big shot in various Hebrew literature in the early state of Israel. His brother was the Knesset member Menachem HaKohen. So it's rare for someone to be able to write both Hebrew and English at a high level, but he was able to. So the book is available for English and Hebrew speakers, and it's certainly worth a read. I'm not going to even attempt to recreate the emotion or the drama that Rabbi Yosef Dov creates in the Shi'urim, but we're just going to go through the basic analytic conceptual ideas. So the purpose of this recording is for people who have studied these ideas in the original and just want a brief review of the key conceptual ideas. So hopefully they'll get that in this recording. Or someone who has not yet studied the ideas fully and properly, but wants to get a basic overview of Rabbi Yosef Dov's conceptual framework for interpreting the Rambam Hilchus Tshuva. So again, they'll get that, but without the important emotional and musr and philosophical and drama that's in the original book. Now, there's seven shiurim that are recorded in the Sefer al Hachuva. They come from between the years 1962 and 1974. And we're just going to go through them in order, again, covering the basic conceptual ideas. And we'll add in some supplementary material as needed. So the first shir develops the distinction between kapara and tahara, which is atonement versus purification. So atonement means that every sin comes with a punishment, There is a punishment attached to it because the person messed up. And tshuva is a way of removing that punishment or at least the full force of the punishment. So that's what the Torah describes on Yom Kippur. That Yom Kippur brings atonement from punishment. But the Torah also says that Yom Kippur purifies. So that's an added component. Not only does Yom Kippur atone from punishment, but it also brings purification. A person could remove the punishment and yet they're still Tameh, they still have the impurity of the sin. Interestingly, Rabbi Yosef Dov throws in that the communists talk about errors, not sin. So they don't recognize this component that a sin brings impurity with it. They just think of it as an error which needs to be corrected. But the Torah is saying that a sin also creates impurity and that also needs to be removed for the full tshuva to be effective. And using this framework, Rabbi Yosef Dov answers a very basic question which he returns to later again. There's a debate in the Gemara in Yuma, between Rebbe and the Chachamim, whether the day of Yom Kippur only is effective for people who do Teshuva or even for people who do nothing. So Rebbe holds that Yom Kippur atones even for people that don't do Teshuva. So Rabbi Yosef Dov asks, imagine someone commits a sin, they steal money, so now they're disqualified from being a witness. Are we going to say, according to Rebbe, that the morning after Yom Kippur, even if they didn't repent at all, they're now allowed to suddenly be a witness? It's as if they were totally atoned? Of course not. So what does it mean that Yom Kippur atones even without teshuva? Says Rabbi Yosef Dov, it means that it's mechaper. It atones, but it does not purify. So even according to Rebbe, if someone doesn't use the day of Yom Kippur properly, they don't repent, even though they get atonement, but they're still missing a major component that they're not purified and they still have the status of a sinner. 
And on Yom Kippur, there's two components to the day. First of all is the sacrifice, all the service that they did in the Beis HaMikdash. And the second is the confession that the Kohen Gadol would do, as well as each of the people. So the Korbanos, the sacrifices in the Beis HaMikdash, that was the element that brought about atonement. But it was the vidui, the confession, the repentance, which brought about the purification. So someone who doesn't do that does not get purified on Yom Kippur, even if they get atoned with the communal sacrifices. And the difference is because no one else can do the confession, the purification on your behalf. The atonement can be done on a communal level and the Kohen Gadol or the Shliach Tzibor, the Chazan, could do it on behalf of other people, but the purification has to come from each individual. And applying this idea, Rabbi Yosef Adov explains a Mishnah at the end of Yuma. Amar Rabbi Akiva, Shrechem Yisrael. Rabbi Akiva said the Jews are lucky. Who do you purify in front of and who purifies you? Your father in heaven. So Rabbi Yosef Dov explains that Rabbi Akiva lived at the time of the destruction of the second Beis HaMikdash. So the Mishnah is dealing with the Jews who have now lost the Beis HaMikdash and they're worried. How are we ever going to achieve atonement? How are we going to have Yom Kippur if we don't have the Beis HaMikdash? We don't have the whole service of the Beis HaMikdash. So Rabbi Akiva comes to answer and he stresses that even though they suffered a major loss, the whole service of the Beis HaMikdash of Yom Kippur and the whole service in general of the Beis HaMikdash, but they still have Tahara. They still can be purified if they do Teshuva. So that's the lesson that Rabbi Akiva is trying to say, that the Teshuva is internal to each of them and that brings about the purification even when there's no Beis HaMikdash. Now, this conceptual approach also answers a question on the Rambam. There is a halacha in the Gemara in Sanhedrin, which is quoted by the Rambam in Hilchus Edus Yudbeis Hey Ches, which deals with the case of someone who was a gambler or they lent money with interest. So those are violations of halacha and they're disqualified from being a witness. So if the person wants to repent, they need to change their lifestyle. They have to break their gambling equipment. They have to stop lending with interest to anyone, even if it's permitted, like a non-Jew. They have to totally change their whole lifestyle, and only then are they able to be a witness. They wouldn't just be able to repent by saying the vidui in shul, like we do for a lot of sins on Yom Kippur. Here there's another process, that they actually have to get rid of all the equipment and the whole life lifestyle that was causing them to sin. Now, the Rambam, again, mentions this halacha in Hilchos Eidos, the laws of witnesses, but not in the laws of tshuva. So Rabbi Yosef Dov explains that there's a basic difference. In the laws of tshuva, the Rambam is ruling how to do teshuva that leads to kapara. So that is a quicker process. A person confesses, they atone, they no longer want to do this sin. And at that point, they get the first step of atonement that they're no longer responsible so to speak, for the sin that they committed. But the tshuva of tahara is a much longer process because the sin does not come about on its own in a vacuum. It's a reflection of a whole attitude, an environment that a person lives in, a long process of how they've lived their life, and that brings them to the point where they commit this sin. So in order to get the repentance of tahara to purify themselves, they need to go back on that whole process. They need to correct all of the things, the whole environment that led 
them to this sin, and that takes a longer time. So that's why the Rambam doesn't record this halacha about the gambler and the person lending with ribis in the laws of tshuva, because in the laws of tshuva, he's dealing with the atonement type of teshuva, and that can be done more quickly. But in order to be a witness, it requires the tshuva of tahara, and that is a longer process. So that's what he records in Hilchos Eidos. And Rabbi Yosef Dov adds that the tshuva of tahara is sometimes not even on a specific behavior or action. The person maybe didn't even do anything, but it's their worldview, it's the environment that they live in, even if it doesn't have a specific behavior, they're not living the way they should, so that requires tahara. So the distinction between kapara and tahara is really very pronounced. Now, Reb Yosef Adov raises the issue, and Reb Elchanan Wasserman, in his Kovetz Mamarim, has a piece on this, whether teshuva is a reflection of Hashem's kindness, it's over and above the letter of the law, or it's din, it's actual judgment. The person doesn't deserve to be punished once they atone. So Reb Yosef Adov says that this issue is the two components of tshuva. The kapara is a reflection of Hashem's kindness because the person hasn't really totally changed their worldview. They just regret the behavior that they did. So it's not judgment that they should be atoned. It's a reflection of Hashem's kindness. As opposed to tahara, where a person really goes deep and changes the whole nature of who they are and how they're living, that type of teshuva is not kindness, it's din. It really makes sense that such a person who's now a new person shouldn't be held accountable for what they did as a totally different person. And Rabbi Yosef Dov adds that kapara is a natural process because there's always regret after a sin. When a person messes up and they abandon the way they should be living, the way their soul wants to live, so it's always followed by a period of regret. The person regrets the decision and the behavior that they did. So kapara is a fairly natural thing to be expected. Tahara is the more difficult process because a person can regret the sin without really changing the core elements that led to that sin, the environment, their whole worldview. A person is very hesitant to start changing all of the factors that brought them to the moment of sin. But that is the true type of teshuva to be able to go back to the larger context of the Avera and to root it out from their life and to set on a totally new path and to become a totally new person. And Rabbi Yosef Dov writes beautifully about this at the end of the shear that every sin trips a person up. That's just the natural outcome of a sin. A person starts off the sin thinking that it's going to be great. They're going to enjoy themselves. They're going to benefit from this. But it always ends up hurting them and causing them to stumble. And there's always regret that comes at the end of the sin. So that is to be expected. But the true effort of teshuva, according to Rabbi Yosef Dov, should go into the tahara. The component where a person looks at their whole life, they take a bird's eye view and they see what brought them to this point and they really work to put themselves on a whole new life track in a whole new direction. So that's the first shear from Rabbi Yosef Dov. There's a lot of very beautiful insights in it and that's the key distinction between atonement and purification. Now, the second shear begins with the Rambam, which is how he standardly begins. And the issue he's discussing in this Rambam 
which the Minchas Chinuch raises, is whether there's a mitzvah to do teshuva. So as we know, the Rambam is very careful about what's considered an actual mitzvah versus things that are a detail, but they're not one of the 613. So the question is, is there one of the 613 mitzvahs to do teshuva? So there's some contradictory evidence in the Rambam. The Rambam at the beginning of the laws of teshuva says that when a person violates any mitzvah of the Torah, they have to do vidui confession. Because the Torah says that when a person sins, they should do confession. And this confession is a mitzvah. So the Rambam seems to be saying that teshuva itself is not the mitzvah, but the confession, which is one of the details of teshuva, it's one of the elements of the process of teshuva, that is the mitzvah. And that's how he seems to present it in his list of the 613 mitzvahs, that the vidui is the mitzvah, not the teshuva. Now, this is a very strange idea, because how could vidui be a mitzvah if the whole overall process is not a mitzvah? And why should it be that way? But also, the Rambam at the beginning of Hilchos Tshuva lists which mitzvahs he's going to deal with. And in that heading, the Rambam does call teshuva a mitzvah. He says, mitzvahs essay achas there is one mitzvah in the laws of tshuva, which is to do teshuva and confess. So there's a real problem. How do you understand the view of the Rambam? Is teshuva a mitzvah, including vidui? Or is the vidui the mitzvah, not the teshuva? So Rabbi Yosef Dov quotes that the Menchas Chinuch, as well as his uncle, the Avodas HaMelech, Rabbi Nachem Krakowski, so they both hold that the Rambam does not consider teshuva a mitzvah, only vidui. And the logic of this is that the Torah does not need to command a sinner to do teshuva. There's a few different ways to formulate this idea. Rabbi Yosef Dov puts it that how could a sinner not repent? What type of Jew would sin and not want to repent? So the Torah doesn't need to command repentance. Also, you could say that repentance is included in each and every mitzvah. In other words, it's understood that there's a mitzvah to do this behavior. And if the person doesn't, so included in that specific mitzvah is the obligation to repent. Or also you could say that the Torah is not going to command in a case of failure. The Torah commands what people are supposed to do. It's not going to say, and if you fail, then you should do this. So for all of these reasons, the Torah didn't command teshuva, it only commanded how to do teshuva. So once the person realizes they sinned, and now they want to repent, so the Torah says it must be done through verbal confession. So that's the famous view of the Minchas Chinuch and Davros HaMelech as well. Now, Rabbi Yosef Adov quotes that he heard from his father, Rabbi Moshe, in the name of his great-grandfather, Rabbi Yashaber, the Beis HaLevi, that he said that this is incorrect. You cannot say that teshuva itself is not a mitzvah when there are so many psukim in the Torah that talk about teshuva. So it has to be that teshuva is a mitzvah. So if so, how do we understand the language of the Rambam that seemed to say that only the vidui is the mitzvah, not the teshuva? So here Rabbi Yosef Dov applies one of his major themes, and we mentioned this in the previous recording about tefillah. Rabbi Yosef Dov says that there is a whole category of mitzvahs where even though there's a 
physical behavior that's commanded, but the fulfillment of the mitzvah is emotional. So we have mitzvahs that are clearly emotional, like love Hashem, fear Hashem, and we have mitzvahs that are clearly behavioral, like eat kosher food, don't light a fire on Shabbos. But according to Rabbi Yosef Dov, there's a category of mitzvahs that combine these two elements. So there is a behavior that's commanded, but the point is the emotional outcome. So he gives a number of examples like Avelos, mourning a loved one. There's all sorts of practices, but the fulfillment of the mitzvah is feeling the pain. Similarly, the opposite mitzvah of being happy on Yantif, so there are practices like eating meat and drinking wine, but the mitzvah is to rejoice. Saying Shema is a behavior, but the point is to accept the yoke of heaven and the fear of heaven. And davening also is a behavior, but the fulfillment is that it's worship of the heart, that it changes the person's outlook on life. So likewise, says Rabbi Yosef Dov, when it comes to teshuva, the behavior that's commanded is the vidui. That is the commandment of the Torah in terms of what the person has to do. But the fulfillment of the mitzvah is the repentance, the emotional experience of teshuva that the person has from the confession. So according to Rabbi Yosef Dov, this explains the difference in the presentation of the Rambam. In the heading, he calls teshuva the mitzvah, but then in the actual halachas, he only talks about the vidui being a mitzvah. And the reason is, says Rabbi Yosef Dov, and the same is true in the laws of tefillah, in the heading, the Rambam lists the emotional component of the mitzvah. So in the laws of tefillah, he says, to worship to serve Hashem. So that's the emotional component. Whereas in the halachas itself, he focuses on the behaviors, the physical actions that are required. So that's why likewise in the laws of tshuva, in the heading, the Rambam describes tshuva, which is the emotional outlook as the mitzvah. But then in the halachas itself, he focuses on the vidui, which is the physical behavior. So all the things a person might do to inspire themselves to do tshuva, let's say they roll around in the snow or they wear black clothes. There's all sorts of practices that are suggested in the literature, but according to Rabbi Yosef Dov's understanding of the Rambam, it's really an internal process. The key idea of teshuva is the repentance that the person experiences and the change in their worldview and perspective. That is the essence of teshuva. The only requirement of the Torah is that they must confess it in order to actualize the process. But that's all the Torah requires. Other than that, a person can use anything else in order to inspire themselves, but the key point of the teshuva is internal. So now Rabbi Yosef Dov begins to analyze the vidui, because the way the Rambam seems to imply, it's not just any confession. You can't just make it up, but there are certain details to how the confession needs to be done. And the key phrase that Rabbi Yosef Dov focuses in on, the Rambam describes the confession, lifnei hakel baruchu, in front of Hashem. So Rabbi Yosef Dov says, what is the point of this phrase? Obviously, the person is confessing to Hashem. Who else would they be confessing to? So what is the Rambam trying to teach us? So first he says that it's a prayer. In other words, it's not so clear that a person confesses and it's going to automatically be accepted by Hashem. So the person needs to recognize that they need to pray. They need to ask Hashem to accept their confession. 
So that's one element of the confession. Second, he says that a lot of times people confess for social reasons. They want people to know that they're repenting or they want to be doing what the community is doing. But a true confession is lifnei hakel baruchu. It's when a person looks at their own relationship with Hashem and the only thing that interests them is how to better that relationship and come closer to Hashem. So that is a true confession. Now, the exception to that is sins that are ben adam lechaveiro. If someone hurts another person, so then of course they need to atone to that person. It's not enough to just atone and confess to Hashem. But the standard type of teshuva for ritual mitzvahs is in front of Hashem because a person wants to come closer and correct the distance that the sin put between them and Hashem. And Rabbi Yosef Dov writes very beautifully and passionately about this point that a Jew is always standing in front of Hashem. They always have this experience of their whole life revolving around Hashem. And then when they sin, it's a mess up and it creates distance between the person and Hashem. And now when they repent, they want to correct that distance and they want to come closer. They want to come back to Hashem. So that's the whole point of teshuva. The word teshuva literally means to return. The person is returning to where they were at. So again, this is not an unnatural process. It's not that a person is born a sinner and they have to better themselves by controlling their desires. That's the way the Musser movement would see it. But according to Rabbi Yosef Dov, a person naturally wants to be in front of Hashem and connected to Hashem and the sin is unnatural. It's a mess up. So now the person wants to return to where they originally were at. And that is the power of teshuva. And that's the whole point of the confession in front of Hashem. So now Rabbi Yosef Dov continues to elaborate on these themes. And he quotes a view of Rabbeinu Tam in the Yud Gimel Midos, the 13 attributes of mercy. We say the word Hashem, Hashem twice. So Rabbi Nutam explained that one of them refers to Hashem before we sinned, and the second refers to Hashem, the merciful, even after we sin. So Rabbi Yosef Vidov explains this according to this whole idea that once a person sins, it's a kindness, a great mercy of Hashem that he doesn't abandon them. He's still there with them and he continues to pull them back to where they originally were. So those are the two attributes of mercy. Hashem is connected with us to begin with. And then even after the person sins and Hashem could drop them, he's still connected and he's the force that propels them back towards the Hashem that the sin distanced them from. So again, this is all a very beautiful idea. And he continues to elaborate on this idea of return. He says that the only form of the word teshuva that we find in the Tanakh, it does not refer to repentance. That's a later usage of that word. In the Tanakh, it's used as l'teshuvas hashana, the next year, when the next year rolled around. So that's what the word teshuva means. So we see very powerfully that teshuva is a circular notion. Just like time is a circular concept and it returns to a similar period or a similar season each year, so too teshuva is a person coming back to where they were going in this circle. So the idea of teshuva is that a Jew can never really grow too far from Hashem. They're always pulled back. And this is a very prominent idea in the Balatanya, the first Chabad Rebbe. And Rabbi Yosef Dov was very influenced by that work. There's a very cute story that when he was a young child, he was sent to Cheder and the Rebbe was a Chabadnik, but he wasn't teaching much Gemara. He was teaching the Balatanya. So when his father found out, 
he pulled Rabbi Yosef Dov and he started teaching him how to learn more like a brisker. But Rabbi Yosef Dov always had a fondness and was always influenced by the Balhatanya's view of the world. Even though he was a descendant of the Balhatanya's main philosophical adversary, Rabbi Chaim of Valazhin, the Nefshachayim, but Rabbi Yosef Dov had grown up in a Chabad town where his father was the rabbi and he had this Rebbe who influenced him and he always had a very strong feel for Chabad philosophy. So a lot of those ideas are included in this shear, this idea that a Jew can never grow too far from Hashem and Hashem is always pulling them back. So that's the essence of Teshuvah, that no matter how far a Jew or the Jewish people travel away from Torah, and he uses the example of socialism and communism and all the isms, but even so they always return. That's the idea of Teshuvah, the return, like the year comes back, so the Jew always comes back. And the reason why the Torah requires that the confession be spoken, it has to be verbalized. It's not enough to just think it. So Rabbi Yosef Dov explains because we can think a lot of things, but something really becomes more real, more tangible when a person is able to express it in words. That's the whole idea of Freudian psychotherapy, the talking cure, that there's all sorts of thoughts in a person's head, but when they're actually able to verbalize it, so that makes it much more concrete and it brings it out. So that's the first point of the vidui, that a person has to verbalize it so that it becomes very clear what they did wrong. And then Rabbi Yosef Dov adds that there's a lot of things that people know, but they're not ready to admit. There's sometimes when a person realizes they're wrong, but they're not ready to be able to say it and have other people know about their shame. So that's the point of the verbal confession, that in order for teshuva to work, a person needs to be willing to say, this is what I did wrong, and to admit it, to acknowledge it, to be able to own up and take responsibility for the sins that they did. So this is the second shear of Rabbi Yosef Dov, analyzing the importance of vidui and its overall place in the teshuva process and why it's the main detail that the Torah lists as a requirement for teshuva. Now, there's a very important related idea, which is quoted in the Sefer Harare Kedem, from Rab Michal Shurkin, based on Rab Yosef Dov, in Chelek Aleph Simen Lamed Hey. The Rambam in Hilchus Tshuva Gimel Dalid, when he's explaining the mitzvah of Shofar, so he refers to this idea that the Shofar awakens the sinners from their spiritual slumber, and it reminds them that they have to get back to living properly. So the mitzvah of Shofar, according to the Rambam, is connected to inspiring Teshuva. So Rab Yosef Dov has a few questions, but the basic idea is what is the difference between the teshuva of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Why do we need two holidays which seem to reflect the exact same mitzvah? Now there's a mitzvah to do teshuva the whole year. So anytime a person sins, they should repent. But there's something special about Yom Kippur. That's clear. Now the Rambam is saying there's something special about Rosh Hashanah. So what's different about the teshuva of Rosh Hashanah versus Yom Kippur? So Rabbi Yosef Dov, as usual, says something very brilliant, and this again is in contrast to the Minchas Chinuch. The Gemara in Kiddushin has a case where a man marries a woman, Al-Minas Shanit Sadik, on condition that I am righteous. So the Gemara rules that even if this man is totally wicked, there's still a possible marriage here because Shema hir her tshuva bedaito. 
it's possible that at the moment he gave her the ring to marry her, he thought to himself at that moment, I want to be more righteous. So at that moment, he repented. And even though we know him to be totally wicked, he was righteous at the moment he gave her the ring and she accepted it and the condition was fulfilled. So possibly they're married. So the Minchas Chinuch asks, this is very nice. It sounds very inspirational that someone could repent the moment they're getting married. But what about the vidui? They didn't do the confession, which is a requirement for teshuva. So the Minchas Chinuch answers that even though there's a requirement for vidui, but that does not hold up the process of repentance. So as soon as someone repents, they immediately become righteous. They're considered a tzaddik, but then they do need to do the vidui if they want the tshuva to be effective and they want atonement. So that's why this wicked person who married a woman on condition that he's a tzaddik, it's possible that at that moment he's a tzaddik. He did not do teshuva. He doesn't have atonement until he does the vidui, but it's possible that at that moment he's a tzaddik. That's the way the Minchas Chinuch sets this up. Now, Reb Yosef Dov asks on the approach of the Minchas Chinuch, even if this person really wanted to be a tzaddik, but you can't do teshuva in one second. It's a process. It takes a few minutes. You have to think about what you've done wrong. You have to regret it. You have to make a commitment not to do so again. You have to accept not to do it in the future. So there's a few elements that are required for teshuva to be effective, not only the verbal confession. So according to the Minchas Chinuch, how did all of this happen instantaneously as the guy is handing the woman a ring and saying on condition that I'm a tzaddik, at that moment he suddenly did full repentance. So because of this problem, Rabbi Yosef Dov suggests an alternative approach, which is that the Gemara is not saying that the person fully repents. Of course, a wicked person can't repent that quickly in a few seconds. It takes a while. So what does the Gemara mean that even if this person is wicked, he's potentially married to the woman because maybe he transformed in a second to being a tzaddik? So Rabbi Yosef Dov gives a different distinction. The Minchas Chinuch differentiated between becoming a tzaddik and getting atonement, but Rabbi Yosef Dov differentiates between teshuva, full teshuva, versus hear her teshuva, reflecting, wanting to do teshuva. That's what the phrase hirhur avera means, that a person is planning to do a sin. They think about it. So likewise, hirhur teshuva doesn't mean that they do teshuva. It means that they think about doing teshuva. They're planning on doing teshuva. So that's what the Gemara is saying, that as soon as a person decides they want to do teshuva, even before they've done so, they're still considered a tzaddik, and that's why there's potentially a marriage. Now, teshuva itself is a longer process. It requires harata and azivas achet, regret and commitment not to sin again. So that does take at least a few minutes, and it also requires a verbal confession. But here, her teshuva can be done even in one flash instant, a person decides I no longer want to go down this track, I want to go down a different track, and that immediately is hear her teshuva, and that turns them around, and they're not a Russia any longer. Says Rabbi Yosef Dov, the idea of Rosh Hashanah is not teshuva, it's hear her teshuva. The point of the holiday of Rosh Hashanah is not that a person's going to atone at that moment and go through the whole process of confession and charata and aziv sachet. That's not how we spend the day of Rosh Hashanah. We don't even say a vidui on Rosh Hashanah. So the teshuva of Rosh Hashanah is not that we're actually 
actually doing the process of teshuva. It's hirhur teshuva. We're looking at our lives and we're saying in the new year we want to go in a different direction. We no longer want to go down the road that we went down last year. We're going to do teshuva and that of course is a preparation for Yom Kippur when we actually do the process of teshuva. So this explains very beautifully the essence of the day of Rosh Hashanah versus Yom Kippur and the relationship between them. The Rambam calls the mitzvah of Shofar a mitzvah of teshuva because it's the idea of hirhor teshuva. It wakens a person up and it says you've got to go in a different direction and that's the point of Rosh Hashanah. And as soon as the person accepts hirhor teshuva that they're going to do teshuva, they're already considered a tzaddik as the Gemara in Kiddushin says. So that's how we can merit a good year on Rosh Hashanah by doing Hirhur Teshuva, but that means a few days later on Yom Kippur, we really have to get down to the process of Teshuva, which is what we do with the fasting and the Vidui, and we go through the actual process of Teshuva now that we're prepared from the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. So this is a very brilliant approach. It helps explain the difference between Hirhur Teshuva and Teshuva, and it's a beautiful way to understand the Aserasimei Teshuva. The third Shir in al Teshuva develops the distinction between personal versus communal teshuva. So this focuses on the second halacha in the Rambam's Hilchos Teshuva, where the Rambam discusses the Seir HaMishtaleach, the special sacrifice of Yom Kippur, the goat that was sent out into the desert and pushed over a cliff. So the Rambam writes that Seir HaMishtaleach Mechapra Al Kol The special sacrifice of Yom Kippur would atone for all the sins the people had committed that year, but the Rambam adds one caveat. It's only if the people do teshuva. If they don't do teshuva, then the Seir HaMishtaleach only atones for lenient sins, not stringent sins. And the Rambam explains which sins are in each category. So this is a very unclear ruling of the Rambam. He's putting together a few different Gemaras and he's creating this framework. So Rabbi Yosef Dov asks where exactly the Rambam gets all these concepts from. I'm not going to go through all the detailed questions. But the basic idea that he develops is that the Rambam describes the Seir HaMishtaleach as the sacrifice of the Jewish people in its entirety. Entirety. So it's a communal sacrifice. It's not each person's form of atonement. It's another track of atonement which is done on behalf of the Jewish people as a whole. And Rabbi Yosef Dov adds very importantly that it's not that it's a sacrifice which comes on behalf of the entire people. That's a different concept. He quotes that the Ramban says that let's say every Jew in the world would buy a sacrifice together and bring it together. That's not a carbon seabor. That's not a communal sacrifice. That's a private sacrifice which many Jews are bringing. Just like you could have a partnership of 10 or 20 or 2 people who bring a sacrifice together, but that's not a communal sacrifice. And an example of that is the Karban Pesach. Even though all the Jewish people bring the Karban at around the same time, and they bring it in large groups, but it's not a Karban Sibor. It remains an individual personal sacrifice that's brought on behalf of a group together with the rest of the Jewish people. As opposed to something like ownership of Eretz Yisrael, which we've seen a number of pieces from the Soloveitchiks about 
about this, the ownership of the Jewish people is not an individual concept. It's not that each person owns their plot and together the Jewish people own that land. That might be one element of it, but it's also that the land of Israel is connected to the Jewish people as an entity. So that's how the Seir HaMishtaleach works. It belongs to the Jewish people as an entity. So that means that there are basically two major tracks of Teshuva on Yom Kippur Day. One is the one that we generally think of. Each person atones, they regret, they confess their personal sins. So they do an individual repentance and they get atonement on Yom Kippur Day. But then there's a whole nother concept, which is that as a people, the entire Jewish nation is atoned on Yom Kippur Day. And that's symbolized, that happens through the Seir HaMishtaleach. And that's a totally different track. And that's why the Rambam says that there are different details to how that tshuva works from the personal teshuva. So now applying this framework, Rabbi Yosef Dov answers a question that we mentioned in an earlier shear. The view of Rebbe in the Gemara is that Yom Kippur atones even if the people don't do teshuva. So the question is, what does that mean? That everyone wakes up the day after Yom Kippur and they have no more sins? That can't be because we know that sins accumulate. We talk about the Jews going into exile for all of the sins that they did. But if every year the slate is totally erased, so how do the sins build up over the years? So Rabbi Yosef Dov quotes that Tosos Yeshanim says that even according to Rebbe, there's only a partial kapara on Yom Kippur, meaning with Teshuva, a person can get a full atonement on Yom Kippur. But without Teshuva, Rebbe holds that there is a partial kapara, but not a full kapara. Says Rabbi Yosef Dov, what exactly does that mean? So he applies this conceptual idea that Rebbe holds that the communal atonement happens regardless of whether each individual does Teshuva or not. The communal atonement of Yom Kippur is a fact of nature and it happens every year regardless of what the people do. But the individual personal kapara does not kick in unless the people do teshuva on Yom Kippur. So that's what Tosos Yeshanim means that according to Rebbe, there is a communal atonement but not an individual atonement. So that's why there's a partial atonement on Yom Kippur without teshuva. Now the Chachamim who disagree with Rebbe so they hold that if an individual does not atone on his own personal level, so if a person doesn't do teshuva and kick in their personal atonement, so then they're also not included in the communal atonement of Yom Kippur. So that's how Rabbi Yosef Dov understands the debate between the Chachamim and Rebbe. According to the Chachamim, if someone does not repent on Yom Kippur, they're not included at all. They don't get any atonement, not even in the communal atonement that happens to the Jewish people. Now, Rabbi Yosef Dov continues that this distinction between communal and personal teshuva is a major concept in the whole process of Yom Kippur and the Yomim Noraim. So on Rosh Hashanah, we have two blowings of the shofar. We nowadays do a third one, but that's a later custom. The two main blowings for the halacha are right before Musaf and then at some point during Musaf. So Rabbi Yosef Dov quotes
Shemot's view in the Rishonim that the blowing before Musaf, that's when each individual performs the mitzvah of Shofar. The blowing during Musaf is an obligation on the community. So if someone is davening Musaf by themselves without a minion, so in fact he quotes the Rif and the Rambam in Hilchus Shofar, Gimel Zayin, hold that one is not obligated to blow the Shofar during Musaf without a minion. So again, we have this distinction that the Shofar before Musaf reflects the personal teshuva, and the Shofar during Musaf is the communal teshuva. And on Yom Kippur, we also have two confessions. One that the person says privately at the end of their Shemona Esrei, and the second that we say communally during the Chazar Sashat all together. So that again reflects the two elements of teshuva, the personal versus the communal. And Rabbi Yosef Dov points out that when you read carefully through the context of those two different confessions, they're actually totally different. The personal vidui, we're asking Hashem to accept our confession. We're not sure that on a private level, we're fit to be giving confession to Hashem. But the communal vidui reads differently. It's much more upbeat and optimistic because we're much more confident that Hashem is going to accept the communal confession. So the individual always wants to attach their personal repentance to the communal repentance on Yom Kippur. And this is also one of Rabbi Shal Salanter's big themes during the Aseris Yimei Tshuva, that one does not come to Hashem on their own. Everyone wants to come to Hashem as part of a larger community with other people together. So coming at it from a very different angle, Rabbi Yosef Dov arrives at basically the same conclusion. And interestingly, he makes reference to the custom that many shuls have. There's a sort of upbeat song that everyone sings together during the communal vidui. So Rabbi Yosef Dov explains this. We don't sing during the personal vidui because we're more apprehensive. We're worried about Hashem accepting the vidui. So it's a much scarier prayer as opposed to the communal vidui where we have much more optimism. So there we sing it in a sort of upbeat tone altogether. So that's a very interesting additional point. And furthermore, the custom of Yizkor also began at Yom Kippur because we're including in the community of the Jewish people not only the currently living, but also all of those who are past. They are also part of the community of the Jewish people that we're all approaching Hashem together for atonement. And now at the end of this shir, Rabbi Yosef Dov makes one of the most significant points in this sefer, which is there is a debate between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yoshua in Sanhedrin Sadizayin Amud Beis. Rabbi Eliezer holds that Mashiach is only going to come if there is a real repentance of the Jewish people and the Jewish people come back to a life of Torah. Otherwise, if the Jewish people don't repent, Mashiach is not going to come. And Rabbi Yoshua disagrees. He says that there is a promise that the Jewish people will repent and Mashiach will come. So he agrees that there has to be teshuva before Mashiach comes, but he says that there is a promise that the Jewish people will do teshuva and bring Mashiach. Now, Rabbi Yosef Dov asks, according to Rabbi Eliezer, and there's strong evidence that the Ramban and the Rambam rule like Rabbi Eliezer, that if the the Jews don't repent, Mashiach's not going to come. So what about one of the 13 principles of faith that the Rambam said is that 
Mashiach's going to come. So how can we believe that Mashiach's going to come if it depends on the Jewish people doing teshuva and it's possible that the Jews won't do teshuva and so Mashiach won't come. So that undermines the principle of faith that Mashiach is definitely going to come. So Rabbi Yosef Dov says something unbelievably important, that the belief in Mashiach is really the belief in the Jewish people. The belief that Mashiach is definitely going to come is really a way of saying that we have a belief that the Jewish people are going to repent and come back to a life of Torah. And that's what it means, he says, to be connected to the Jewish people as a whole and to do teshuva with them, to never lose faith in the entity of the Jewish people. So all these dire predictions that we hear about how the Jewish people are falling apart and they're never going to be able to come back. Reb Yosef Dov says that all of that is a blatant disregard for the principle of faith that Mashiach is going to come, which means that the Jewish people are going to repent, even though it looks very dire, it looks like the Jews are assimilating all over the place, but we always have to maintain faith and belief in the Jewish people as an entity. So this is an unbelievable idea. And he follows it up with a very personal story. He says that many times he's lying in bed at night and he starts to think, how are the Jewish people ever going to pull this together when things are so bad? There's so much assimilation. The Jews in Israel are threatened physically. There's all sorts of problems facing the Jewish people. How are they ever going to survive and pull this together and be worthy of Mashiach? And he says that Jews in Israel are saying that the Jews in the diaspora are lost. They're just going to assimilate and that's going to be the end of them. And Rabbi Yosef Dov says that he thinks that this is an affront to the whole idea of Mashiach because to believe that Mashiach is going to come and redeem us means believing that the Jewish people are going to repent. The Jews in the diaspora are not going to assimilate and disappear and that the Jews in Eretz Yisrael are going to be safe. They're not going to be destroyed physically. So we have to have belief in the spiritual and physical eternity of the Jewish people and never give in to this pessimistic idea that the Jewish people are not going to be able to hold their own. So obviously he's responding to a lot of ideas in the 60s and the 70s. People are questioning the future of the state of Israel. People are questioning the future of American Judaism. And Rabbi Yosef Dov is not dismissing the concerns. He himself shares those concerns, but that is what it means to believe in Mashiach. It means to believe in the entity of the Jewish people, their eternity, their survival, and the fact that they will thrive spiritually and physically. So this again is a very beautiful shear. And the key concept in terms of teshuva is this distinction between communal versus personal teshuva. Now in the fourth shear, Rabbi Yosef Dov develops the distinction between intellectual versus emotional teshuva. So it's clear in the Rambam that in the first and second chapters, he seems to be describing two different types of teshuva and different commentators formulate the different tracks differently. And Rabbi Yosef Dov himself formulates it in different ways. So in this shear, he differentiates between emotional tshuva versus intellectual tshuva. So one of the problems in the Rambam is that in chapter one, he lists harata, which is regret, before Kabbalah Allah Haba, before the commitment not to sin again in the future. So the process 
process of teshuva is first of all regret, followed by a commitment to the future. But in chapter two, he reverses it. First, he lists the commitment for the future, and only then he lists regret. So Rabbi Yosef Dov wants to explain this contradiction based on this idea that there are two different kinds of teshuva. And the example that he gives is when it comes to absolving a vow. So someone made a vow and they don't want that vow to remain. So there are two ways to remove it. One is a Pesach, an opening, and one is Harata, regret. And the distinction is that a Pesach means that the person did not understand the vow they were making. So they made a fundamental error in the vow. So let's say they said, I'm not going to eat that piece of meat because it's not kosher. And then it turns out it is kosher. So they made a vow that was an error. As opposed to harata, where there was no error in the facts, but the person realizes that they themselves can't withstand this vow. So let's say someone got angry at someone and made a vow not to do something with them. And then the anger subsided. And now they can't even understand why they made such a vow. So the facts were correct. There was no error, but the person themselves changed. They no longer want this vow. So Rabbi Yosef Dov says when there's an opening, meaning when the vow was an error, that's an intellectual change. The person learns new information and they now understand that what they originally thought was incorrect. As opposed to harata, where the person regrets the vow, that's an emotional change. They didn't learn any new information, but they changed as a person and now they regret the vow. So says Rabbi Yosef Dov, that's the same distinction when it comes to teshuva. There's an emotional teshuva where a person is sick and he points out that when the Rambam and Rabbeinu Bechaye and the other medieval philosophers talk about holy hanefesh, a sickness of the soul, they're not talking about a mental health problem the way we would use that phrase nowadays. And in a very speculative footnote, he says maybe they didn't have as many mental health problems as we do nowadays. But again, that's totally speculative, and it seems to me more a reflection of his times than any real historical reality. There's obviously a lot of different ways to explain why the Rishonim don't discuss very much mental health problems. But either way, when the Rishonim do say choli hanefesh, a mental health problem, they refer to a sin. So we see that a sin is considered an illness. It's an emotional, spiritual, psychological illness. And Rabbi Yosef Dov explains this because a sin is abnormal. It's unnatural. And that's what an illness means. Aristotle explains that the body is indicating that there's something off from the normal functioning. There's an abnormal problem that the person should be aware of. That's why we have pain in order to alert us that there's a problem. So the same is true when a person commits a sin. They're not in a normal situation anymore. They're not thriving. There is now something off and they experience it as an illness, as an emotional pain in order to alert them that they're off and they need to get back on track. And Rabbi Yosef Dov says that very often before a person even realizes that they did a sin, they can feel that there was a sin. In other words, they might not be able to intellectually identify or describe what sin they did, where they went off, but they can feel that something is off. There is a spiritual pain that's nagging them 
And that's how they first begin to understand that they must have done something that they shouldn't have. Now, just like with a physical illness, sometimes a person ignores the pain. They don't go straight to the doctor until it becomes worse. So too with a spiritual illness, sometimes people ignore the pain the feeling that it's off until it gets worse. And Rabbi Yosef Dov points to the Pasuk in Shmos Lam and Gimel Dalid after the Jews did the Chet HaEgel, the people began to mourn and the people suddenly realized that they had done a major sin, but it took a while for it to set in and then the mourning began. So you see that there was a two-step process. First, there was a dawning awareness that something was wrong and only after that the people began to mourn. And Rabbi Yosef Dov compares this to the process of Avelos, of mourning for a loved one, that we only have Avelos for losing a close relative. If someone loses a tremendous amount of money or a job or something else, we don't have Avelos because that's not as serious a loss as losing a loved one. And Rabbi Yosef Dov describes this very dramatically that even for years afterwards, people will come back to the home they shared with this person and everything else is in order, but they can sense that something is off, something is missing because their loved one is no longer there. He has a story that he tells in another context after he lost his wife one night waking up in the middle of the night and running down to the room trying to check on her and she had already passed a few months earlier. So he seems to be referencing that anecdote, but he says that people have a hard time grasping that their relative is no longer here. So there's sometimes a two-step process where the person realizes that they've lost this person and then the morning, the sadness kicks in. So the same is true when it comes to the process of sin, first there's an awareness that there's something wrong, and only after that comes the mourning and the sadness. In addition, Rabbi Yosef Dov says that mourning involves a certain masochism. There's a certain self-hatred involved in it. So the same is also true of mourning a sin that a person is filled with self-hatred for what they did. And he says that the Chaye Adam, the great Poseik, had a very good understanding of this because in the tefillah that he wrote that many people say before Yom Kippur, the Tefillah Zaka, he has a phrase, we're shocked about ourselves. How could this abomination have been done? So the Chayyadim focuses on the aesthetic shock that the sinner feels. How could I have descended to this low level? And he doesn't even call it a sin. It's not that the person did something wrong or they did something they shouldn't have. He calls it a to'eva, an abomination. The person is disgusted by what they did. And Rabbi Yosef Dov goes through examples from Tanakh of people who were so disgusted by their sin that they felt that they had to turn it around. So that is emotional tshuva. And that's what the Rambam's describing in chapter one when he says that harata comes first. First, the person is disgusted. They regret what they did. And then they make a commitment not to do so again in the future. So that's all a description of the track of emotional teshuva. But then there's intellectual teshuva, which works differently. This teshuva doesn't have the sort of shame and the sadness and the mourning of the first teshuva. It's not that the person becomes aware of how awful the sin was and how much it's pulling them down, but the person understands intellectually that they should not have done what they did. So it's missing the emotional baggage, but the person realizes that they should not have gone down this track. What they did was wrong. 
So this person would theoretically want to continue doing the sin. They enjoyed it. They have nothing against the sin, but their intellect is battling their desires and they are choosing to side with their intellect and not to give in to their desires. So this is a much longer process. It's not that the person wakes up and says, I can't stand this anymore. I have to change my ways. But here the person has to work at it. It takes much longer. And that's what the Rambam's describing when he says that first they have to make a commitment not to sin anymore. So that's the commitment that they're going to control what they want to do and instead do what they know is right. And then only after they go down that process for a time, again, it takes a whole process, only then do they start to regret the sin that they did. So that's what the Rambam's describing in chapter two, that first there has to be a commitment not to sin again. And then at some point following that, there will come the harata, the person will start to understand why the sin was wrong. Now, in the second half of this shear, Rabbi Yosef Dov goes in a different direction and he discusses some very important ideas, many of which are very fundamental to his overall worldview, but it's a little bit of a tangent from the central ideas that we're discussing. So I'm just going to mention very briefly the broad outlines of the major ideas and then we'll continue with the tshuva discussions. Rabbi Yosef Dov develops that there are two sources of sanctity of Kedusha for every Jew. One is as a result of the covenant that Hashem made with the Avos, with the ancestors of the Jewish people. So that includes Avraham, as well as the covenants that Hashem makes with the Jews who left Egypt. So these are historical covenants and they continue all the way down for all generations of Jews. But then there is a personal covenant between every Jew and Hashem. So Hashem endows each of us with Kedusha in our own merit. And Rabbi Yosef Dov compares this to a convert. The way a person becomes sanctified and joins the Jewish people is by accepting the mitzvahs. That's the key moment that transitions the person into the Jewish people. So we, each of us, are also able to do that. We have this personal sanctity that comes to us from committing to a life of Torah and mitzvos. And Rabbi Yosef Dov sees the vidui on Yom Kippur as a reflection of that. That it's like a vow that a person is taking, just like our ancestors took a vow at Har Sinai to follow the rules of the Torah, and the convert accepts a vow to follow the rules of the Torah. So the confession is renewing our vows. And he goes into all of this in detail because the Rambam talks about doing the confession in front of Hashem as a witness. And part of a vow is that Hashem is the witness. So the confession is when we renew that sanctity. And then Rabbi Yosef Dov says an amazing insight. He says that a psychologist asked him, why is it that we always talk about being afraid of Hashem when fear causes trauma? There's PTSD when people have too much fear in their lives. So how is it good to constantly be in fear of Hashem? How does it not cause a lot of psychological issues? So Rabbi Yosef Dov gave him a brilliant answer. He said that there are all sorts of fears and anxieties that people have. People are anxious about their careers, about getting 
getting sick, about losing money. Everyone is filled with all sorts of anxieties. But the way psychologically to overcome all the small anxieties is to have one big fear that displaces all of them. So someone that has a real, tangible, legitimate fear is not going to have all these small fears because they're too overwhelmed by the serious fear. So the way to overcome all the anxieties that fill us is to be filled with the fear of Hashem, the fear of not properly living a life of Torah, and that removes all these smaller fears. So this is an amazing insight that the fear of Hashem is not going to cause a lot of psychological damage. It removes the other sources of anxiety, and it gives a person a proper way to channel that anxiety and to fear Hashem, and that removes all the dangerous types of anxieties that could lead us astray, because now we focus our energy on fearing Hashem and living a life of Torah. So Rabbi Yosef Dov says that that's the essence of what we're trying to accomplish on Yom Kippur, that we come into Yom Kippur and we say the confession that we're not going to be filled with any of those other fears. We're freeing ourselves from all the other things that occupy us, and now we're committing ourselves, we're renewing our vows to live a life of Torah and to be focused only on connecting with Hashem and doing what He commanded. So this is the second half of the shear. Again, there's a lot more detail and there's a lot of very important key concepts in his discussion, but the overall distinction in terms of teshuva in this shear is between emotional, aesthetic teshuva versus intellectual teshuva, which is a much longer process. And the interesting thing is it's a little hard to tell which one Rabbi Yosef Dov appreciates more or prioritizes. On the one hand, he spends a long time very vividly describing the emotional teshuva. So it sounds like he very much connects with that. But then he points out that the Rambam uses the phrase teshuva gemura, full teshuva, in regards to what he calls intellectual teshuva. And obviously that too has its strengths because a person is not overcome with emotion. They're coming from a logical place and they're still choosing to do the right thing. So that can be harder and longer. So it's worth admiration. So it's unclear which of these, if either, Rabbi Yosef Dov prioritizes. It could be that he admires both of them equally. Now, the fifth shear starts off a little meandering, and he just reviews a lot of the ideas that he's already developed, but it ends up probably the most important philosophical shear in this book. So we'll see that in this piece, Rabbi Yosef Dov really deals with the essential philosophical issue of teshuva, which is what does it mean to undo, to change the past? The past is already frozen in time. It cannot be changed. So in the beginning of the shear, Rabbi Yosef Dov develops an idea that there are two elements to the vidui. One is the confession, the regret for the sins that the person did. And on that level, the vidui is the culmination of a longer process of teshuva. It's the verbalization of the earlier steps of tshuva that the person's done. And then the second component of vidui is a prayer that they want to come closer. They have longing for Hashem. So again, this mirror a lot of the earlier distinctions that we've seen between the longer process of teshuva, the regret, versus the longing for purification and to come closer to Hashem. And Rabbi Yosef Dov focuses on the word in the vidui, chatosi avisi upashati, the person says, I sinned, lifanecha. 
in front of you, Hashem. So it's a moment of standing in front of Hashem and longing to come closer. And Rabbi Yosef Dov expands that the idea of a sin is that a person feels so low, so far from Hashem, so disdainful of what they did, that they almost feel like there's no hope. They can't come back to Hashem. But the truth is that there's always that spark there. Again, we've seen all these basic ideas earlier. There's always that spark that pulls the person back to Hashem and that allows for teshuva. And Rabbi Yosef Dov explains a number of the phrases in the davening and in the Rambam and he brings examples from stories in Tanakh to back up all the points that he's making. Then he connects this all with the idea of a karban, a sacrifice. And we saw his basic idea about this in the previous recording about tefillah, that the idea of a sacrifice is according to the Ramban that really the person themselves should be offered as a sacrifice. Judaism teaches that we, each of us, are supposed to be totally sacrificed and committed to Hashem, but Hashem allows us to bring an animal as a symbol of our own sacrifice, and by offering up this animal, we get credit as if we sacrificed ourselves. So that's the idea of a carbon, and then he connects that all to teshuva because there is a confession over the carbon as well. So the idea of teshuva is that the person recommits that they are going to be totally given over and committed to the service of Hashem instead of all the other things that were occupying them. But now in the second half of this shear, Rabbi Yosef Dov finally comes to the central philosophical problem with teshuva. And that is that a person does a sin and now they regret it. But how does that change what they did? The effects of that sin are already in the world. This is part of the person's history. So how does regretting it now change anything that happened in the past? And furthermore, we are all a product of our past for better or for worse. The good things we do, the mistakes that we made, all of that is what makes us who we are today. So what does it mean for a person to say, I regret what I did, as if they're cutting off part of their past? That's a part of who they are. So teshuva seems like it's cutting off a part of who the person is. And then there's another part of this problem, which is how is it healthy for someone to constantly harp on the past and be stuck in their past mistakes? Part of mental health is being able to move on and not be caught up always in the past. So how is it healthy for someone doing teshuva to constantly be reflecting on the things that they did wrong in the past? So these are very big issues. And Rabbi Yosef Dov himself quotes that as a result of this problem, Spinoza and Nietzsche, who are two of the major anti-religious philosophers, both totally reject the idea of teshuva. So Rabbi Yosef Dov himself sets up his idea in contrast to the critique of Spinoza and Nietzsche, and he quotes that on the Jewish end, many great Jewish thinkers have dealt with related issues, including Rav Sadia Gaon, Rabbeinu Yonah in the Shari Tshuva, Rabbeinu Bechaye, Rab Chaim of Valazhin. and he quotes a cute line from Rabbi Yudaya HaPanini, Ha'avar Ayin, Ha'osid Adayin, Ha'hove Keheref Ayin. The past is gone, the future is not yet, and the present is like a blink of an eye. So there's a lot of issues. How do we understand the time component of Tishu? 
So Rabbi Yosef Dov develops a very important philosophical model to answer this question, and I'm going to try to go through the key components of it, but there is a lot to say about this, much more than I can cover in just a few minutes, and there's been a lot written about Rabbi Yosef Dov's approach. There's an article in Tradition, Volume 18, by Pinchas Peli, and in Tradition 28 by Yitzchak Blau, called Creative Repentance, and he points out that a lot of these ideas Rabbi Yosef Dov is developing are based on a non-Jewish German philosopher named Max Scheler, and he too responded to Nietzsche's critique of Teshuva, and he originally developed a lot of these ideas. He also points out that the Sride Eish, in a piece that he wrote on Teshuva, also uses Scheler's overall approach. So Rabbi Yosef Dov was not the only Gadol who found Scheler's approach to Teshuva helpful to understanding it, and Rabbi Yosef Dov reflects the same basic approach at the the end of Halachic Man, he also discusses the concept of tshuva, and he formulates the same basic ideas. There's also a very good discussion of this in a book by my advisor, Daniel Reinhold, comparing the philosophies of Nietzsche and Rabbi Yosef Dov. So he has a very good discussion formulating Rabbi Yosef Dov's ideas about tshuva in a philosophical way. So that's some of what's been written about Rabbi Yosef Dov's approach to tshuva. So Rabbi Yosef Dov answers this question based on a comment in the Gemara in Yuma Pevav Amid Beis, that if someone does tshuva me'ahava, they do tshuva out of love of Hashem, so then zdonos nasos lo kizchuyos. The sins are not removed in that case, that's how we generally think about tshuva, that the sins are absolved, but if someone does this higher level of tshuva, the sins remain, but they're transformed into mitzvahs. So it's not that we're getting rid of what happened in the past, it's actually more radical that we're turning the past sins into mitzvahs. So based on this, Rabbi Yosef Dov says that there are two types of tshuva. There's the regular one that we think about where a person regrets what they did. And as a result, Hashem says, I'm going to erase and forget about the past sins. But then there's a higher level where the past sins are actually sanctified and they themselves become a merit for the person. And the way this is done, so here again, Rabbi Yosef Dov returns to one of his major themes of longing to come closer to Hashem. And again, he compares the whole process to Avelos, to mourning the loss of a loved one. And here he adds that the pain of Avelos is that we never properly appreciate someone until we lose them. Even a relative that we're very close with and that we do appreciate in their lifetime, but we never fully appreciate them until we lose them. And he speaks very movingly about the loss of his father who had passed many decades earlier, who was his only Torah teacher. And he makes a comment about how he's desperate to share his latest chidushim insights on the Torah with his father. And he would give so much just to have five minutes to be able to speak in Torah learning with his father and share the chidushim. And then even more dramatically, he shares that his wife and his mother, who had more recently passed away. So he says that generally when he would prepare his tshuva shir, he would speak it over with his wife. He would ask for her input. And this year again, as he was preparing his tshuva shir, he was looking for his wife's input, but she had already passed. So it's very moving the way he describes this, but his point is that an element of the avelos, the mourning, is that now a person starts to understand what it is that they lost. And in other places, he refers to this as a form of tshuva, meaning we didn't fully appreciate 
appreciate the person when they were alive. And now there's an element of avelos, which is tshuva over not having fully appreciated the person. But it's also a sadness because now a person begins to understand what it is that they actually lost. So this, he says, is the model for tshuva me'ahava. The sinner now realizes how painful it is to be distanced from Hashem. And that causes them to want to return to Hashem with even more force than they originally wanted. Originally, they didn't understand how central and how satisfying it is to be close to Hashem. But now having sinned, having gone through that process, now they fully understand how incredibly important it is to be close to Hashem. And so the sin drives them back to Hashem and that causes the tshuva me'ahava. So that's why the sin is not erased. The sin is actually a good thing in this case because now it inspired even greater growth than there was originally. So the sin is like a mitzvah because it brings the person closer to Hashem than they were before they sinned. So that's the power of tahara, of the purification of Yom Kippur. It's not just removing the sin and cutting off the past like Spinoza and Nietzsche understood it, but it's more than that. It's taking the sin and sanctifying it and using it as a source of inspiration to come even closer to Hashem. So that's his philosophical response to the Nietzschean critique of Teshuvah, that it's not really about the past, it's about sanctifying the past to inspire an even greater and more sanctified future than would have been possible. So those are some of the key themes in this fifth and very important philosophical shear. Now in the sixth shear, he adds into the mix the idea of free will, and he discusses how that's important to Teshuvah. So he begins with a very nice tradition that he quotes in the name of his father and his grandfather that the Rambam has 10 chapters in the laws of Tshuva and he says that they would study one of those chapters during each of the days of the Aseris Tshuva. So he says that even though he studied Hilchos Tshuva many times, this year when he went through it, he noticed a new problem. And this is actually a very glaring problem for anyone that reads through it. And it's very much of a brisker problem because we've discussed in earlier recordings that Rab Chaim and Rab Velvel are very sensitive to the organization of the halachas in the Rambam and the order of the presentation. So this is a problem with the organization of the Rambam and Hilchos Tshuva. So it's very much in line with how the briskers read the Rambam. The issue is that in the first four chapters of Hilchos Tshuva, the Rambam gives the basic rules of Tshuva. So there he discusses the outline of how to do Teshuva, what's special about Yom Kippur. He discusses the judgment of the soul after it dies. He talks about two different models of Teshuva. He talks about the different punishment for the sins, the importance of the Aseris Yimei Tshuva, different things that prevent a person's ability to do teshuva. So that's all the major rules of teshuva. Then in chapters 5 and 6, he discusses the idea of free will and the Rambam was a firm believer in free will and the Rambam considers free will to be the basis of teshuva because if a person does not have free will, then they're not responsible for their sins. It's only because of free will that a person is responsible and has to do teshuva. So, so far, this is all fine. In the first four chapters, the Rambam tells us about teshuva and then he has 
two more chapters discussing free will, which is the basis of teshuva. But then, oddly enough, in the seventh chapter, the Rambam suddenly returns to teshuva, and now he introduces another idea that teshuva is not only for actions of a sin, but even for midos, for bad character traits. So Rabbi Yosef Dov says that there are three problems with the Rambam's organization. First of all, if free will is the basis of teshuva, then why is it in the middle in chapters 5 and 6? It should be chapters 1 and 2 and then get to the idea of teshuva. First introduce free will and only then go to teshuva. The second problem is why is free will in the laws of teshuva at all? It's actually one of the fundamentals of faith, so it really belongs in Hilchos Yesodei Hat. Torah, which is the fundamentals of faith. Why does the Rambam insert it in Hilchos Tshuva? And then finally, why does the Rambam divide the discussion of Tshuva half before the free will discussion and then half after? Why doesn't he put all the Tshuva chapters together? So to answer this, Rabbi Yosef Dov now has a very long discussion about an apparent contradiction in the Rambam. The Rambam at the beginning of the Sefer Mitzvos talks about Laha'amin Be'eloku that one has to believe in God. But at the beginning of the Mishnah Torah, the Rambam uses the phrase Leda, that one has to know God. So there seems to be a contradiction. Do we believe without solid evidence or do we have to know? Now, it's interesting. Rav Shach in the Avi Ezri quotes that he asked Rav Velvel this question and Rav Velvel answered that the Rambam is saying that there are two components of faith. There are things that we know, but real faith are the the things that are unknowable, the things that are above our knowledge. So the Rambam is trying to say that we should know as much as we can, but the real concept of belief are the things that we cannot know. Now, this really goes totally against the whole Rambam's worldview. The Rambam does not believe in blind faith. The Rambam believes that all the major principles of Judaism can be proven, and people should only believe things that they can prove. And the Rambam gives all sorts of proofs. So Reb Velvel's explanation of the Rambam really goes against the Rambam's own understanding of the concept of belief. Reb Velvel is advocating blind belief, whereas the Rambam teaches that we should be able to prove anything that we believe. So there's no real belief. Everything is knowledge. Now, Rav Kapach quotes from Rav Chaim Heller that there is no contradiction. Both places should say Leda. So we see that there is no real contradiction in the Rambam. The contradiction is really between the translator's use of the phrase. But there was no contradiction in the original Arabic of the Rambam. Either way, Reb Yosef Dov, like his uncle, asks this question, but he gives a totally different answer, which is much more in line with the Rambam's overall philosophy. So Reb Yosef Dov is probably more sensitive to the Rambam's worldview. And the way he explains this is that Leda does not mean to intellectually know something. It means to reflect, to be aware of something all the time, to incorporate it into one's life. So the Rambam is saying it's not enough to just believe in Hashem. It has to be a part of one's daily life. They have to be constantly aware of Hashem's existence and it has to change what type of person they are and how they live. And says Rabbi Yosef Dov, that's the way all the mitzvahs work. It's not enough to just know about the mitzvah. One 
one has to incorporate it. It has to change their daily life and who they are. And now Rabbi Yosef Dov devotes many pages to describing how this would look, to include the knowledge of Hashem in our daily life, to constantly be aware of Hashem's presence, to constantly be grateful for all of the gifts and blessings that he gives us. So he goes on and describes this very vividly. It's also in difficult times that a person is aware that Hashem is with them. They're not doing this alone. So there's a lot of drama in the way Rabbi Yosef Dov presents all of this. And again, you get a real sense for his lived experience and how much these ideas must have been part of his life. And he adds that when he gives a shear, so he's teaching his students the intellectual tradition of brisk, and he's able to pass it along. They're able to understand the depth of the Gemara and the beauty of the ideas that he's teaching them. But he says that he can't pass along the emotional experience that he got in his home growing up. And the example he gives is the feeling he had when Rab Chaim would say one of the piyutim on Yom Kippur, which describes the service in the Beis Mikdash. He says it felt like Rab Chaim left brisk at that moment and he was in Yerushalayim of thousands of years ago. And there's no way for him to pass along that experience to these American students that he has. This was one of his common complaints. He used to say that he's able to pass along the intellectual tradition of brisk, but he can't can't give over the emotions, the awareness of Hashem, the feelings that he got in the home that he grew up in. So he repeats that here. And according to him, that is the model for what it means, Leda, to know, to be aware, to live with this constant presence of Hashem. Now, on a historical level, there's a slightly different tradition in Uvdos Van Hagos 1, page 237, that Rab Chaim did not daven all that long on Yom Kippur. He would skip most of the piyutim and discuss the service of Yom Kippur with Reb Simcha Zelig, as opposed to the Beis Halevi who said vidui extensively that day, as well as every day throughout the year. And in Nefshar Rav, page 207, it says, Rab Chaim said no later piyutim on Rosh Hashanah Musa. And Rab Yosef Dov continues with this theme. He bases the next few pages on a Gemara in Chagiga that talks about looking at a rainbow at the Nasi, the leader of the Jewish people, and the Kohanim when they give the Jewish people their blessing. So Rabbi Yosef Dov expands very beautifully and at length how each of these is a way of enhancing our lives and bringing Judaism, the awareness of the religion, into our daily life. So he has a beautiful description of what the blessing of the Kohanim means. So this is the idea of Leda, not just to intellectually know about Judaism, but to live it and to be aware of it all the time and to be transformed by it. So now applying this idea, Rabbi Yosef Dov comes back to the question, why does the Rambam insert a discussion of free will right in the middle of his discussion of tshuva? So as we would expect at this point, Rabbi Yosef Dov differentiates two different types of tshuva. He says that there is a tshuva that happens when a person can no longer sin. And the Rambam already discusses this. So let's say someone got old or sick and they're no longer able to do the sin that they originally did. So at this point, they do teshuva because of physical necessity. They're no longer able to choose to sin anymore. Then the Rambam says that there is another type of teshuva when a person could sin, but they choose not to. 
And Rabbi Yosef Dov says that actually both of those types of tshuva are in an overall category. Because even the person who chooses not to sin, and here he revisits one of his major themes that we mentioned in an earlier shear, that a person becomes disgusted by the sin. They regret what they did. So they no longer want any part of that. So even a person who chooses not to sin, even though they physically could, but emotionally they're disgusted by the sin and they're unable to continue doing the sin. And again, he expands on this and he uses a lot of the same examples, but some new ones as well from stories in the Tanakh and different areas of halacha. So again, he goes on about this for many pages that people become disgusted by sin and they no longer want anything to do with that. So the Rambam differentiates between these two types types of tshuva, but according to Rabbi Yosef Dov, they're in one broader category. But then there is another type of tshuva entirely. And this is the tshuva that he discussed in the previous shir, tshuva me'ahava, where a person just wants to come closer to Hashem. And using this framework, which again, he's developed in earlier shiurim, he answers a question from Rav Kook, who also wrote a lot about tshuva and had some very creative novel ideas like Rabbi Yosef Dov, about how to understand tshuva. So it's fitting that Rav Kook is quoted in this sefer. Rav Kook was bothered by the Gemara, which says that there are certain sins which one cannot atone for immediately. They need to wait either for Yom Kippur or there needs to be some sort of yesurin suffering before the tshuva process is complete. So Rav Kook asked, how could that be? And Rav Yosef Dov attributes this. They met once in the early 30s, right before Rav Kook died. And Rav Yosef Dov comments that he imagines Rav Kook as the great lover of the Jewish people. So that's why Rav Kook was bothered. How can the Gemara say that there is some teshuva which is not effective immediately? Why should the person have to wait for Yom Kippur or suffering in order to complete the teshuva process? Why is it not enough that this person wants to come back and repent from their evil ways and come back to Hashem. How could that not alone be enough? Says Rabbi Yosef Dov, it comes back to this distinction. The Gemara, which is saying that one has to wait for Yom Kippur or suffering, is referring to the first type of teshuva, where there's either a physical or an emotional block for the person to continue sinning. As opposed to tshuva me'ahava, where the person transforms themselves and their whole past into righteousness and closeness to Hashem, so there the tshuva is effective immediately. And there are other commentators who also propose similar ideas that the limitations of teshuva only applies to one type of tshuva, but there is a more powerful form of tshuva which is effective immediately. So says Rabbi Yosef Dov, the tshuva me'ahava, where the person is yearning, they're longing to just come back to Hashem, that is effective immediately. It does not require Yom Kippur or suffering. So this now explains why the Rambam divides his discussion of teshuva, and in the middle, he talks about free will. The first four chapters are talking about the first type of teshuva, where there's something blocking the person from continuing to sin. So that's a valid type of teshuva, and the Rambam describes that. But then he introduces the concept of free will that a person can transform themselves at any moment. And that's talking about this radical,
radical transformation where the person takes their whole past and sanctifies it to bring themselves closer to Hashem. So that's what the Rambam is referring to in chapter 7. That's dependent on the idea of free will. And that's why the Rambam divides the whole discussion to tell us that this now is a new type of teshuva, which is based on the free will. And Rabbi Yosef Dov compares this to the coming of Mashiach. He quotes a very interesting tradition that he heard from his father in the name of Rab Chaim Valozhner. And this is a famous description that Rab Chaim Valozhner said the way Mashiach comes is instantaneous. He describes that one morning he wakes up and he's just having a regular day and his wife goes shopping and tells him not to let the food burn and he sits down to learn and suddenly he hears all sorts of noise and there's something going on and he asks someone what's happening and the person says Mashiach arrived. So that's the way Mashiach comes just on a regular day totally unexpectedly and Mashiach is suddenly there. There's other sources like in the Rambam that seem to imply that Mashiach's coming is a longer process and people will have more of a sense that this person is building up to be Mashiach. But again, this is the tradition of Rab Chaim Valozhner and it's very influential. Many people nowadays think of Mashiach coming exactly in this way and this tradition is reported by Rab Yosef Dov in this shear. So that's how he compares this type of tshuva that it's instantaneous immediately a person can turn themselves around. Now this is all based on the Rambam's radical view of free will. According to the Rambam, a person can immediately change at any point whatever they want. The Ravid disagrees and the way Rabbi Yosef Dov understands him, and this is something that Rav Dessler also writes in the Mikhtav Meliyahu, is that a person doesn't generally change radically from one end of the spectrum to the other. That would be a mental illness to totally change everything in your life. So according to the Ravid, a person does not have free will for whatever they want to do, but Rabbi Yosef Dov goes on to try to defend the view of the Rambam that there's this radical notion of free will that a person can be totally transformed at any moment. So that's an interesting discussion, but we're not going to get into the details of that. And Rabbi Yosef Dov makes a number of other interesting points at the end of this shear. He compares the way of the Jewish righteous to the Christian saints. And he says that the stories of the Christian saints is always that they're fighting to control their evil impulses as opposed to the Jewish greats where they don't fight against their nature, they transform it. So this is an interesting point, but I do think that many Bali Musar are of the first style that they do fight their evil impulses. So this again is a reflection of some of the tension between the brisker worldview and the Musar movement. But either way, it's an interesting point. He also talks about the individualism of people and how each person is striving for their own self-fulfillment, even though people are generally alike in many ways, but even so each person is their own full world. And he gives a vivid story about someone who goes out on a beautiful starry night. He says that a religious person is going to see the power and the might of Hashem, whereas someone without religion is just going to see an empty world. So each person has their own perspective of the world. And the Torah teaches that we're able to radically transform our perspective of the world. And again, the example he uses for this is conversion, where a person totally reinvents themselves and becomes part of the Jewish people. So that is the type of tshuva that the Rambam's trying to tell us about, that there's a radical transformation where a person uses the 
leda, the awareness of Judaism, and it transforms them immediately from a sinner into a righteous person. So that's the form of tshuva the Rambam discusses, but only after he introduces the concept of free will, because that immediate form of tshuva is totally dependent on this radical idea of free will that a person can totally transform themselves and elevate their whole past life in even one moment. So this, again, is a very powerful idea, a very nice reading of the Rambam. Now, the final seventh shear focuses on the role of suffering in Teshuva. And Rabbi Yosef Dov begins with a question very similar to the one he just quoted from Rav Kook, that the Gemara says that Yom Kippur doesn't atone for many sins unless they're suffering. So how could it be? We always talk about Yom Kippur being the day of atonement. How could it be that it doesn't atone for all these sins? And he makes it more personal. He says that he always has this fear when he studies that Gemara. How could it be that a person can't atone unless they suffer, that's a very scary idea. So Rabbi Yosef Dov explains that the power of Yom Kippur is that it makes it possible to atone without very severe suffering. Even though ordinarily a person might need to suffer, but Yom Kippur removes that element, not entirely, but it neutralizes it. And he makes an interesting comment that this idea is very mysterious. And he says, when you read the piyutim, the great poems of Jewish history, especially the ones from Rabbi Elazar HaKalir, so they try to get at this mystery. So he's a big fan of the piyutim. He says that the more he studies them, the more he understands the depth of the day of Yom Kippur. But according to Rabbi Yosef Dov, there are three components to the way Yom Kippur neutralizes the requirement for severe suffering. The first is that instead of a big punishment, it allows for a very small one. The second is that instead of a real punishment, it allows for a symbolic one. And the third is through the goat sacrifice. So Rabbi Yosef Dov explains them. The first idea is a mashahu, that instead of a big punishment, even a small, tiny punishment is enough. And he goes on at length about this idea. He says that Judaism does not put value in large or big numbers. It's about the quality, not the quantity at all. And he sees this as a big difference between Judaism and non-Jewish religion which are more focused on the large things, whereas Judaism gives equal value regardless of how big or small it is. And again, he has a lot of details and examples from the Tanakh. He quotes the Chassam Sofer that when Yisro gives Moshe advice about judging things, he differentiates between big judgments or small judgments, whereas Moshe differentiates between difficult judgments. So Moshe rejects the idea that there's a difference between a large sum of money and a small sum of money. The only question is how difficult the situation is. And he has other examples for this idea from the halacha. He says that the halacha is, let's say someone wants to buy a building that's worth $50 million. They could buy it even by just giving the seller a dollar as a down payment if both parties agree that that's the Kenyan. So now the buyer owns the $50 million building and they have to pay back the $50 million, but they acquired it through a dollar or even 
less than that, so long as it's a pruta. So you see that even a small, tiny amount in Judaism could be a huge value. So that's the first way that Yom Kippur atones without real suffering, because even though this person sinned, so theoretically they should get terrible suffering because of what they did against Hashem, but Yom Kippur allows for even a tiny amount of suffering to count as if the person totally paid up their debt. Then the second approach that Yom Kippur allows for teshuva without real suffering is chalipin, a replacement. So there is another way to do a kinyan in halacha to acquire something without actually paying the full amount. And that is a chalipin where the buyer picks up the object, but there's no actual money that changes hands. So it's a symbolic type of kinyan. So unlike the first case, where even though there wasn't real money, there was a tiny amount amount of money. In this case, there's no actual money exchanging hands and still the Kenyan takes effect. So that's the example for the second way that Yom Kippur works, that it allows for a symbolic form of Yisurin, which counts as if the person actually suffered. And Rabbi Yosef Dov says that this is based on the Gemara in Erchin Chafbez Amud Bez, and he has a cute little line that he's a misnaged, he's not a chassid, so he has to find a source for everything in the Gemara. So the Gemara asks what is considered Yisurin, and the Gemara gives three answers. Each one is trying to outdo the other one, making it less and less. So the first one is if a person's clothing don't fit them properly. The second one is if they wanted hot water and they got cold water. And the third one is even less than all this, if a person tried to pull coins out of their pocket and they didn't get the right change. So this is obviously a tiny amount of suffering. So what's the point of this Gemara? identifying it as Yesurin. Says Rabbi Yosef Dov, the Gemara is teaching us what is the criteria for the suffering that's necessary for Teshuvah. And the answer is these tiny, tiny things that are barely suffering. That's the symbolic form of Yesurin that Yom Kippur allows to count in place of what the person might really deserve. So that's the second power of the day of Yom Kippur in minimizing any need for Yesurin and allowing for a Atonement. And the third approach is the Seir, the goat sacrifice of Yom Kippur, which goes to Azazel. So there were two goats. One went to Hashem and the other was pushed off a cliff to Azazel. Now the Ramban asks a very basic question. Azazel is like the force of evil, the Satan. So how do we bring a sacrifice to a force that's opposed to Hashem, a force of evil? That's called Avodah Zarah. So how are we able to do that on Yom Kippur? So the Ramban gives a longer answer, but the basic point for our needs is that since Hashem commanded us to do that, so it's not considered Avodah Zarah. Avodah Zarah is when a person does so against the will of Hashem. But if Hashem says to do so, so then it's okay. But still says Rabbi Yosef Dov, what's the point of bringing this sacrifice to this evil force? So Rabbi Yosef Dov explains very beautifully that the Seir Ta'azazel represents all of the frustrations and all of the wasted energy that we gave to forces that are evil, that are opposed to Hashem. We should have been using all of our energy in the proper way, but instead we focus so much of our energy on improper things. So Hashem says we're going to elevate all of that on Yom Kippur by taking this sacrifice to Azazel, which represents all of the improper energy. And now we're doing it because Hashem said to 
to do so. So it elevates all of the mistakes and all of the wasted energy of the year through this sacrifice. It now brings us closer to Hashem. So now that's also a way of fulfilling the requirement of Yisurin. When a person says, I've suffered so much through the process of doing all these sins. I had so much wasted anxiety. I put my energy in the wrong place and it was so frustrating. So now all of that suffering is sanctified and elevated and that becomes the suffering which itself is able to atone for them. So this is a very powerful idea that the Sayer carbon of Yom Kippur is able to transform all of the suffering and challenges that we all go through on a daily basis and that we constantly experience because of this process of sin, of being far from Hashem, and then pulling back from it and returning to Hashem. So that whole process is filled with frustration and that itself is the suffering that eventually purifies us and that process happens through the Seyer La'azazel of Yom Kippur. So that's a very powerful idea. And Rabbi Yosef Dov illustrates it. We've seen this theme in earlier shiurim, but in this shiur, he has a very powerful illustration of it, which is the people living in communist Russia who are totally devoid of religion. And he says that he spoke to people who left Russia and they told him that not only the Jews, but even the non-Jews, people are desperate for meaning and spirituality in their lives. So it's not possible to live in a totally atheistic place with no spirituality and no meaning. A person naturally, organically yearns for spirituality and to be close to Hashem. And that's the way all people, not just Jews, but everybody is built that way. So this is Rabbi Yosef Dov's ultimate belief about all this, that the closeness to Hashem, the yearning for more meaning and spirituality is not something that goes against our nature, but the opposite. It's really a reflection of who we are at our core. That is what it means to be a human being, to have this deep yearning for something transcendent to come closer to Hashem. And that ultimately is really his whole vision of tshuva, what it is that we're trying to accomplish. The sin got us off track and the tshuva brings us back to what we're naturally supposed to be doing. And he quotes that the Kabbalists have this idea, and again, he's referring to Chabad, that when a person sins, they feel displaced and personal redemption is returning back to the roots of a Torah life. And he adds that the Kabbalists understand this better than modern psychologists that a person who's sinning is scattered. They're lost. They don't have direction of what they're supposed to be doing. And he ends, the last point he makes builds on this connection between tshuva and geula, repentance and redemption. So he refers to a discussion in halacha that differentiates between when Yehoshua sanctified the land of Israel versus when Ezra did so. Now this is a popular theme. We've discussed this in a few earlier recordings, most recently about Reb Moshe, the two components of the sanctity of Eretz Yisrael. But Reb Chaim and Reb Moshe as well were very interested in what was the difference between the first sanctification of Yehoshua and the second of Ezra. Because the Rambam himself introduces the problem, according to the Rambam's rulings, Yehoshua captured the land in war, but once the Jews were exiled, the land lost its sanctity. As opposed to Ezra, there was no war when he came back at the beginning of the second Beis Hamikdash, but the Jews settled the land. And according to the 
Rambam, that was eternal sanctification. So even when the Jews went into exile at the end of the second Beis HaMikdash, the land did not lose its sanctity. So the question is, why is settling eternal and war is only temporary? So again, earlier we saw explanations from Rab Chaim to explain the difference. But now Rab Yosef Dov suggests a new approach, which is when Yehoshua captured the land, there was nothing sanctified at that time. There was no place of the Beis HaMikdash. That only came after Yehoshua already captured the land. So that's why that sanctification was totally dependent on the Jews capturing the land. And when the Jews went into exile, so the land lost its Kedusha. But only the rest of the land lost Kedusha, not the area of the Beis HaMikdash. That's the view of the Rambam. And we've seen earlier as well that Rab Chaim also believed this is a very important conceptual point. So now, when Ezra returned, the area of the Beis HaMikdash was still sanctified. So he was not starting from scratch. There was a sanctified area, even though it wasn't the whole land, but what Ezra was doing was expanding the sanctified area of the Beis HaMikdash to the rest of the land. So that's why his sanctification was eternal, because it wasn't starting from nothing, it was expanding a pre-existing Kedusha. So Reb Yosef Dov sees these two models of Yehoshua and Ezra as the two models for the type of teshuvas that he's trying to explain. There's the Yehoshua model, which is a slower process. And then there's the Ezra model, which could happen even in a minute. A person can totally turn around. And he compares this to the legend of the great German Jewish philosopher, Franz Rosenzweig, who was going to convert to Christianity. And then he had one powerful Yom Kippur and totally turned Turned his life around. So like all these types of stories, the academic historians don't think they happened, but they can still be very powerfully inspiring. Now on this last point, it's just worth adding, there is to my mind a much better formulation from Rabbi Yosef Dov of this whole approach in a shear in the first volume of Shurim Lezecher Abamari, where he's explaining the difference between Moshe's decree to read the Torah on Shabbos versus Ezra's decree to read it on the week days. And Rabbi Yosef Dov gets involved in the same issue of what was the difference between Yehoshua's capturing versus Ezra's settling. So again, these were very popular themes in Brisk. Rab Chaim, Rab Moshe, and Rabbi Yosef Dov in a few places returns to this. But the way he formulates it in the Shir, in Shir and Lezecher Abamari, is that Yehoshua sanctified the land with the Torah Shebech Sav, with the written Torah that was the Luchos in the Aron. In the times of Ezra, they had already lost the Luchos. They didn't have the Aaron. It was put away. So they had to sanctify not with the Torah Shebersav, but with the Torah Shebalpeh, which lives in each Jewish person. So the sanctification was not through the Aaron. It was through the Jewish people themselves. And that's why it was eternal, like the Jewish people are eternal. So this is also an idea that Rabbi Gedal Yashor in the Or Gedal Yahu has, that Hanukkah is the holiday of Torah Shebalpeh, because at that point, there was no longer Torah Shebech Sav. The Tanakh ended during the first Beis HaMikdash period. That's Torah Shebech Sav. That's the Aron. But the second Beis HaMikdash, there was no Aron. There was the Menorah. And that's what we celebrate on Hanukkah, the Torah Shebaal Peh. And that's why the Menorah is the symbol. So a very similar idea from Rabbi Yosef Dov and the Orgdal Yahu. But Rabbi Yosef Dov speaks about it in unbelievable terms that Ezra did a national teshuva that no longer would everything depend on the Torah Shebech Sav. They now
now basically reimagined Judaism and they brought the people back and they said to them, now we're setting up a new system. It was a massive teshuva movement, which is based on Torah Shabal Peh, which means that now each of us, the Jewish people, is going to be responsible for the Torah. So it's an unbelievable shear. There's a lot more in the details, but it's a similar approach to the last point of this shear, although I think it's more sharply formulated. Either way, these are some of the highlights of Rabbi Yosef Dov's ideas about Teshuvah. And again, the combination of the brisker analysis with his lived emotional experience of this is just amazing. It yields all sorts of novel and important insights of Teshuvah and presents it in a whole new perspective, which is very different than other traditions.